Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. We're looking at the book of Acts to see how we began as Christians, as the church of God. We started in the book of Acts, and it's such a beautiful story. It's full of positives and negatives, lessons of help and learning, but also warnings of things to avoid. And we've been looking at the essential elements of the early church so that we can try and copy them and be inspired by them. We've seen how they met together, how they loved each other, how God's power and miracles were flowing through them, how they prayed together and the various ways that they interacted. But today I want to talk about purity because there was an attitude to holiness and to sin that I think we can learn from. They were so fired up about being holy and pure, not just trying to obey outside rules to look holy, but actually to be holy on the inside. And the result of it was extremely close intimacy and fellowship with God, but also his power was flowing through them. Can I ask you, my dear friend, how are you doing with purity? Have you understood grace, God's grace and forgiveness, to maybe mean that you can just sin without worrying? Or have you understood God's fire of holiness that even though we are forgiven, it inspires us? Titus says that the grace of God has now appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live for God. And so we're going to look at this today. It's a bit of a shocking story. I'm warning you that you will have questions before you have answers. But let's dive right into it. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. What's that all about? In these early days, they were so inspired by God that they sold everything they had and they shared their possessions. Amazing. Verse 2. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, was he okay with that? Was he allowed to keep back a part of it? Absolutely. God never enforces generosity on us, especially in the New Testament. It's got to come out of the heart. But the problem here was deception because, verse 3 says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, we may think this is a tiny sin. Lying, just pretending, making a big show of your gift and saying this is the full proceeds so that people think you're great. But actually, we'll see that purity means extreme radical commitment to being pure and right and holy in every area. In the New Testament, you know, every law in the Old Testament that was written and documented could be got around by lawyers and clever people or could be pretended by showing a, a, a mask and saying, look how holy I am where your heart is not holy. But in the New Testament, Jesus said, no, no, it's about what's in your heart. It's not about adultery. It's about what's in your heart. It's not about murder. It's what's in your heart, your heart, your heart, your heart. Your heart. 
He said to the Pharisees, you, you look nice like you're whitewashed tombs. You look clean on the outside, but inside there's deadness. And so the early church had this desire to be pure on the inside. Now, you may struggle with that and you may feel, oh, no, I don't want this. I want to show you today that God's grace teaches us and inspires us to be holy. And it's a beautiful, beautiful lesson. And the results of it are really amazing. Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Oh, my word. He was judged. <laughs> he died. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now, when it was about three hours later, when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? It wasn't just the husband or the wife. They had conspired to lie. They had said, let's pretend to be holier than we are. Wow, I'm challenged by this. Are you? Have you ever pretended to be holy? Peter said to her, have you agreed to test the spirit? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And then it goes on to talk about the power in the early church, the power, but also the persecution they were under. But there was power released. And I want to say that there is a link between purity and power. Now, there are a few questions that arise in our minds. First of all, if God is a God of grace, if Jesus has truly died for our sins, why were these two people judged? Surely we are free from judgment. Surely God looks away. Our sins are covered by Jesus. Why were they judged? And I'm going to try and answer that today. But there are other questions. Is it right for God to judge? Um, I thought grace meant that there's no more judgment. There's no more punishment. Is, is that right? Or maybe we've misunderstood grace. Maybe we have to understand justice in order to understand grace. What about this question? Is this a once-off? Or does God judge every sin? If everyone, if anyone sins, does God judge them? And, and are we seeing examples all around us of God's judgment, of people being judged? Whenever something goes wrong, are we seeing that as a, as a picture of God judging those people? Or... What about nations and, and disasters? When those happen, is that God's judgment? What, what is going on? When is God judging? And, and how does he judge? And, and what punishments does he meet out? These are all valid questions. But I want to focus, first of all, on the benefits of purity. And then I'll come back to these questions in a moment. So there are three benefits to holiness and purity. You know, in the Psalms, it says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, holiness, purity, being, being clean and pure and with good intentions and good actions, both outside and within, that has a beauty to it. There is a beauty to holiness, and I've summarized it in three words, and they are intimacy, impression, and impact. Intimacy, 
Jesus said in Matthew that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There is an intimacy when we are pure, where we are closer to God. Now, Jesus' blood has paid for our sins, but there is a human part to this. You know, your spirit is pure, but your soul, your emotions and your body play a part. Your mind, your will, your emotions and your physical body play a part. And even though your spirit may be forgiven, if there is guilt or wickedness or something you you doing deceptively inside your heart or something you're doing wrong or rebelliously, it can block that intimacy with the Lord. He has forgiven you, but you may not be enjoying it. And when we are clean before the Lord and open and transparent, there is an intimacy, there is a closeness, there is a beauty, a beauty to holiness. It's just, it's just the most amazing thing. The second word is impression. We make an impression on others. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Um, don't hide your light, but shine your light so that men may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. We make an impression. We, we really um, impress the world when we do good works. You know, they may not say it. People at your workplace, family members, others you, you interact with, they may not say anything. But they are impressed when you don't lie, when you don't gossip, when you don't steal, when you don't cheat, uh, when you avoid dirty jokes, when you avoid places and things that are unclean, they are impressed. As long as we don't come across with this Pharisee-like pride, which says, I'm better than you. But when we come across with a, a desire to be pure, it is impressive. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. When people see your good works, when they see a, an honest person with integrity, uh, it, it's so impressive. So there's intimacy. There's an impression. And the last one is there's impact. There's power. There is a released supernatural power when we walk in holiness. Now, I believe in the grace of God that Jesus has paid for my sins. I fully believe that. But again, my own conscience, my own emotions and mind get in the way, even though my spirit is clean. If I'm not cleaning my soul up and my act, getting my act right with God, it gets in the way and sometimes the power is blocked. In 1 John 3, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, listen to this, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We get answers to prayer. There is a release of power when you are walking in purity. There is an intimacy. You make an impression and there is more impact. There is more power from God. And that is why it is the beauty of holiness. In 2 Chronicles 20, the enemy forces are coming against Israel and uh, King Jehoshaphat puts the singers, the praise and worship leaders in the front of the army to walk towards the enemy. And they were praising the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And they were saying, praise the Lord. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. His love, his grace never ends. But there was a beauty of holiness in what they were doing. There's the two that go together. You praise him for the beauty of his holiness but it makes you want to be holy 
And then you say, but thank you that your love, your grace, your forgiveness endures forever. And when that all marries up, the grace of God that has appeared that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live for God. Amazing. So let me try and answer some of those questions. You know, Jesus was asked um, when there was a blind man, his disciples said, who sinned? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? Because they thought when a person sins, there is a, a punishment from God. And Jesus said, neither him nor his parents. It's not always a, a punishment from God. It's a, it's a result of sin in the world. We are all being affected by the sin that is rampant in the world. And that's why disasters happen. Jesus told another story where a tower had fallen on some people. He said, were those people that were killed when that tower fell on them, were they worse sinners than anyone else? He said, no, they weren't. He was saying that there is, we can't always say everything that happens bad is a punishment from God. And now I want to show you a couple of very interesting scriptures and points. I'm going to use the book of Romans to start off with. So the first point is that um, sin causes harm. And so purity is, is a beautiful um, opposition to the harmfulness of sin. Romans 6.23 is a great summary verse. It says the wages of sin is death. What is wages? Wages is something I work for and then I get my just rewards. The wages of sin is death, but the verse goes on to say, but the gift of God. A gift is different to wages. The wages of sin, I get what I deserve. When I sin, when I do things that are not what God wants, I get the, the wages, I get the effects of that, and it causes death in me. You say, is that really true? You remember right from the start, God said to Adam and Eve, if you sin, if you turn away from me, you will die. And the devil said, no, you won't die. God's lying to you. He doesn't really want what's best for you. And the minute they ate that fruit, they were cut off from the source of life. You see, they didn't realize they were plugged into the life of God. And the minute they turned away from God and turned to the devil, trusted the devil's lies more than they trusted God's good truths, they were cut off. And that's why God said, the minute you eat, you will die, because they were cut off from the source of life. But now God is so patient. There are so many verses in the Bible where, which show that God is just in letting death happen immediately, but he delays it because he wants people to be saved. Even though he said it's right and it's, it's the, the normal consequence of cutting yourself off from me that you have death in your life, I am going to find a way to rescue you. And so sometimes we don't see the immediate results of our sin at the time because God is patient with us and he's trying to work a rescue plan. But there is always death. For every sin, there is death. Always. It, we cannot get away from that. The, the laws of nature, the laws of the spirit realm, the way that the universe is set up, says that if we cut ourselves off from God, the source of life and light and love, we will suffer death. And Adam and Eve started to die physically on that day, but also spiritually they were cut off from God. And there's so many verses. I'm just going to pick a few. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? He's been talking about people who sin. He says, no, not at all. 
For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Let me just put it this way. If God were to punish sin when it happened every single time, all of us would die within the first years of our lives because the minute we come out of the innocence of childhood and we know what we're doing, we sin so quickly, we all would die immediately. Adam and Eve would have died immediately. God is patient, but that doesn't mean he's done away with justice. He's just trying to find a way to rescue us. But justice will always be done, but grace is more powerful. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. He goes on to say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But now listen to these words in the next few verses. Romans 3.25. He says, Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. You see, now we see the rescue plan. You remember in the Old Testament, God told them to sacrifice animals and to put blood on the altar. And it was pointing forward. Those animals had no power to save people from sin, but it was to point them forward to a time when God himself would say, I am going to pay the price of justice myself. I'm going to become a human. I will die. I will take the punishment, even though I don't deserve it. I will take it so that justice is done. And that's what that word propitiation means. It's the same word that is translated mercy seat in the, in the temple when they put the blood on the mercy seat to pay for sins. Propitiation. And Jesus set forth, God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, his justice. You see, even though it was an act of grace, it was also an act of justice because he was saying sin deserves and demands and always results in death. But I'm going to take the death for you. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness or his justice, that he might be just, not just merciful. The death of Jesus wasn't just mercy, it was justice. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are so many verses. I had planned to read lots of verses from the book of Romans to show you this, but I'll have to do that in an, another sermon. But that little passage is enough to show that God is being just, but he's also being gracious when Jesus dies for our sins. And there is a forbearance. There is a waiting. There is a, a setting aside judgment where God says, I'm not going to judge right now. Now, where do we stand right now? If you're a believer, I want to say to you that you stand in a place where God has covered your sins. If you do not yet believe in Jesus, if you've not yet given your life to Jesus, you still are waiting for that punishment. It's going to come on judgment day. But God is not judging and punishing every sin whenever something bad happens. And I'm going to show you that now with a few verses. 2 Peter 3 verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There's a waiting period. God has said, I'm putting off just judgment and justice. It's coming one day. Verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. There will be justice. Jesus has paid, and those who believe and receive his payment are under that payment. But those who don't, there will be a, a judgment day and justice will be done. But we're in a period where God says, even though that sin deserves and, and requires payment, and even though I've paid for it, um, I'm going to wait. I'm going to give you as much time as I can to receive the gift that I've given you. Another passage that says a similar thing is Acts 17, verse 26 says, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The reason God is not punishing and not judging every sin is because he's hoping we're going to reach out. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. There is a, a delay of judgment that God is, is working in the Old Testament and in the past and even now to a degree. Because, verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Judgment day, justice, punishment for sin is coming one day. And in the meantime, we're living in a period of grace. Let me just read you a couple more verses because it's very important that we get this. We're not condemned if we believe in Jesus. John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the, honor the Son does not honor the Father. God has said, I'm not going to judge. I've given it to Jesus. He's done his work and I'm only going to judge at the end. John 5, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment. He has passed from death into life. We've passed out of judgment. Please receive that. John 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Isaiah 54 verse 9, For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you, for the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from me, from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Friend, if you believe in Jesus, we need to believe these words that say we are not condemned. Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His blood has covered us. He has made us clean. If you have not received Jesus, there is still time, but don't wait. Because a day is coming when justice will be done. Justice is either done by receiving Jesus' payment or we pay ourselves. But there is always justice, but grace comes so that we can live for him. 
But now I want to answer the question, why did Ananias and Sapphira get judged? Why did that happen? There are several possibilities. Number one, maybe they weren't believers. But even then, you would have thought God would have waited till the end to judge them. Another possibility is that sometimes God steps in and he says, in order for my bigger purpose of the church and God's message being sent out to the world, in order for my bigger purpose to come to pass, sometimes I have to judge before judgment day. And so we see Noah's flood. We see some of the nations in the Old Testament who were wiped out because they were opposing God's plan. And, and let me just say that God is allowed to judge whenever he wants to. He chooses to be patient and wait till the end. But if it's necessary for his bigger plan, he can step in and judge beforehand. So that's another possibility is that he had to judge this sin right at the start of the early church, even though he didn't do it again. In many other instances in the book of Acts, people sinned and they didn't drop down dead. It might have been that he had to do it just to get the church going in these very early days. But there is a third possibility. And Isaiah 57 verse 1 says, The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. There is a place where God sometimes, because in his knowledge from heaven, he can see the beginning and the future and the end. He can see it all. And he says, maybe Ananias and Sapphira are believers. They have sinned. But if I let them get away with this, I can see where this is leading. They're going to sin more. They're going to be more deceptive. They're going to harden their hearts. They're going to lose the intimacy, the impression and the impact of holiness. Eventually, they'll decide to turn away. And after my many attempts to get them back, they'll turn away from me entirely and they'll fall away, which is very difficult to do, but they might do it. And therefore, I'm going to take them now. He says, the righteous is sometimes taken early to take them away from an evil end or from a, a disaster. Those are the three possibilities. But what is the takeaway for you and me? Number one, sin always causes death. And so I must be aware of that. And, and if I want to serve the Lord, I must run away from it because Jesus' death was because of my sin. And so I want to be pure. I want his intimacy. I want his impression to be made on others. And I want the impact, the power of his spirit in my life. Sin always causes death. And his punishment is either delayed to the end or is taken by Jesus. But that doesn't minimize how serious and how harmful sin is. And so I should want to be pure. We need to say, God, I'm so sorry that I've allowed myself to be numb to sin and I've forgotten the seriousness of sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me, for paying for my sin. But now, Lord, I want to be pure. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.